Hi, this is Pastor Joel with Right Response Ministries. Our conviction is that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So our mission is to fill the minds of the people of God with the truth of God's Word. This particular podcast is called Church in Crisis, a pastor's thoughts on the coronavirus. Originally, this was just a collection of pastoral addresses that were specifically presented to the members of my local church. But under the prompting of other men and women that I trust, I've decided that perhaps this might be a benefit to the greater church at large. I hope that by God's grace, that proves to be the case. Listen now. Hi, this is Pastor Joel Webbin. We're back, and we are officially back in our studio. Uh, for the first 11 episodes, I was sitting in my backyard at my house because, well, we just didn't really know exactly what was going to happen, and I didn't want to risk uh, not being able to record during that time um, if perhaps I got sick or perhaps the, uh, the emperor of the Soviet state of California determined um, that we couldn't go to our studio for some reason. Things were just still up in the air. So for the sake of convenience and just really for the sake of uh, ensuring that we would still be able to record and that we wouldn't be inhibited from doing so during that uh, season over the last couple months, we moved the, the studio and made a makeshift studio at my house in my garage. So now we're officially back. Uh, hopefully the quality, at least the audio is a little bit better. Uh, moving forward. Um, that being said, I, I wanted to pick back up. This is episode 12 now of Church in Crisis. And I want to pick back up with kind of piggybacking off of the most recent episode. Um, I talked about unity, the importance of unity in the midst of the season. Uh, stress is high, therefore opinions are high. And, um, and the opinions that people hold um, certainly are contradicting at times, and they are strong opinions. And so this is a very volatile season in the church um, between, you know, just in one local church, not just, you know, two churches disagreeing with one another, but in one local church, there can be um, a strong, a high amount of disagreement um, among the members and even among the elders and deacons, the leaders and officers of that church. So I want to uh, continue um, addressing the topic of unity. And today I really want to focus on, on how to achieve unity how to achieve unity um, in, in general, but especially uh, in a local church setting. I think we talk a lot about what unity is, and I think we talk a lot about how to achieve unity in one regard, but I think there's a whole nother avenue, a whole nother method, if you will, strategy of of achieving and preserving unity in a local church that doesn't get a lot of a lot of airtime. And so I, I want to address that today. So uh, I've written this, uh, charity in the midst of disagreement certainly helps to preserve unity. But the greatest way to achieve unity in a local church is for its members, as well as its leaders, to actually be persuaded of the same position. For them actually to hold to the same position whether it be on some theological subject or whether it be about something that's more practical. At the end of the day, I mean, I know that's fairly obvious, but I think it gets skipped over a lot. I, I think that we just, we forget that that is a very real option uh, with ample biblical 
merit, that, that one of the ways that we can gain unity in any setting, in a family, in a church, whatever it might be, one of the ways that we can gain unity is not merely by extending charity and patience and kindness toward one another, and I'm not negating that. That is essential. But in addition, not as a substitute, not replacing that, but in addition to charity, persuasion. I'll say that again. As, as we're trying to both achieve and preserve unity, in addition to charity, we should consider the art of persuasion. For example, in my local church, uh, we have among the members, the deacons and the elders, a very high degree of unity on, on the, the theology of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So when it comes to the subject of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, uh, my local church, the Response Church, holds a very high degree of unity on this subject. However, it would be dishonest for me to say that, that the primary cause, the primary reason for this high degree of unity that my church possesses on the subject of soteriology, it would be dishonest to say that that is resulting from charity. Uh, my church practices charity on this issue. Now, let, let me clarify. Um, there are certain aspects of soteriology that belong to simply Christian orthodoxy, meaning that they're not up for debate. There can be no debate. That there are certain aspects, certain elements of salvation um, that, that are primary issues. They're, they're close-handed issues. And that in order to even be a, a member of the response church, much less uh, a deacon or an elder, you must be able to affirm, for instance, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So everyone at the response church must affirm. In fact, that's part of our, our ordination, if you will, or our, our initiation, our, our welcoming uh, into membership at our church, uh, we have people publicly affirm in one of our members' meetings in front of the whole congregation, they must affirm our church's general statement of faith. And in our general statement of faith, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's general. So in our general statement of faith, we, we don't specify that a person must believe, for instance, that uh, regeneration precedes faith which would be a reformed tenet of soteriology. Uh, so we don't require an affirmation that someone believes, affirms, agrees with the reformed view of soteriology in order to be a member in our church. If you want to be a deacon or an elder, you must affirm that. To be a member, you must simply recognize that that is the position of the church. Um, there's a difference between recognizing this church is a reformed church, and I love this church, and I'm willing not to be divisive in the context of this local church, although I perhaps personally disagree with some of the reformed elements, if that makes sense. So at the leadership level, you got to affirm um, the reformed view of soteriology. At the member level, um, you don't have to be a Calvinist, I guess is what I'm saying. Our members don't have to be Calvinists to be a part of our church. They just have to be Christians. Now, I think that it 
someone is a Christian and they love the scripture and they're submitted to the authority of scripture, um, then, then I don't think it's really a matter of if, I think it's really just a matter of when. Eventually, they're probably going to be, if they're in a good reformed church with good reformed preaching, eventually they're going to come to that view. Um, but the point is, in order to be a member of our church, you need to be a Christian, not a Calvinist. And so, there are, there are orthodox primary issues with soteriology, I'm using this as a case study, as an example, uh, that our members must affirm. They must affirm that we're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. They must not, they do not have to affirm, they must recognize and choose not to be divisive over this issue, but they don't have to affirm or agree with the fact that regeneration precedes faith. So that's charity. That would be an example of charity. And that level of charity that's, that's practiced, um, but that's also, that level of charity is formally integrated even into our church's constitution, our church's bylaws. That's a part of our, our membership. It's a part of who we are as a church. It's formal. It's official. It's written in that you, you can be a member of our church without having to be a Calvinist. So that's charity, um, and it's expressed organically in conversations, in relationship, and it's expressed um, officially and formally, even in our church's constitution and our church's process for membership. That's charity. And charity is one of the reasons why we have a high degree of unity on this subject that I'm addressing, the subject of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But that's not the main reason why we have unity on that subject. That's a reason. Now concede at that point. That is certainly a reason. Charity is a contributing factor to the unity that my church has on the subject of soteriology. But the lion's share of influence in regard to the high degree of unity that my local church possesses on the subject of soteriology, the, the, the primary contributing factor is not charity. It's powerful and persuasive preaching. I'll say that again. The primary contributing factor to the high degree of unity that my local church has on the subject of soteriology is not due to charity. Charity is one of the contributing factors, but it is not the primary contributing factor. The primary contributing factor is powerful and persuasive preaching. The primary reason, what I'm saying is this, the primary reason that my local church has such a high degree of unity in regards to soteriology is not because, it's not merely because, I should say, we're so kind and patient and charitable toward one another. That, that's a factor, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is because we hold the same position. The main reason is because although we allow people to be a member of our church without being a Calvinist, 97% of the members of our church are Calvinist. Why? Because we hold that as a requirement? No. It's because I'm a Calvinist and I'm not bashful or shy about preaching from a Calvinistic lens as I preach expositionally, text by text, on the Lord's Day. So the reason why we have so many people who are, 
are unified on the issue of soteriology in our church is not primarily due to charity. It's primarily due to the fact that we are persuaded of the same position. And we're persuaded of the same position because of powerful and persuasive preaching. It's because of powerful and persuasive preaching. And so my point in all of this is to say that, yes, charity is absolutely essential um, Well, for a host of issues when it comes to local church life. But, but especially with, with the, the challenges and the difficulties and the questions that the church in America is currently facing due to the the, the whiplash of COVID-19. Uh, so, so due to the current crisis, when I say the current crisis, I'm saying that the virus is a crisis, but I, I'm also saying that, that our nation's reaction to the virus, if the virus itself were not a crisis, we would still be in a crisis uh, simply due to the fact of, of all the repercussions that have come about as a result of COVID-19 or a result of our nation's reaction to COVID-19. I think some of our reactions have been good. I think some of our reactions have been overreactions. That's not my point for today. My point for today is this. The church is currently in a crisis. And during a unique crisis, it's not, it's not to say that, that no Christian has ever dealt with anything like this before. But it is unique in the sense that it's, it's unique to this generation. It's unique to me. And, you know, in, in my, you know, three and a half decades of life, I have not encountered something quite like this. Uh, that's not to say that, that this is unprecedented in human history. Ecclesiastes is pretty clear there's nothing new under the sun. So we're not that special. We're not that unique. But it is unique for this generation, or at least for the majority of this generation of Christians. Unless, you, you know, unless somebody was alive and remembers the Spanish flu, um, then, then it is somewhat unprecedented, unique for this generation. And because it's so unique, because it's novel in that sense, it's something that this generation of Christians has not yet really encountered or engaged, I think there should be, if anything, even more charity, not less. We should be more sympathetic, more patient, more long-suffering with those we disagree with. However, this is my concern. My concern is that, ironically, in our attempts to achieve and preserve unity, we might give charity more focus than we should. I think we forget sometimes that charity toward one another in the midst of disagreement is not the only method that the Scripture provides for us in achieving and preserving unity. I believe that charity in the midst of reasonable disagreement, right, we're both underneath the banner of orthodoxy, in the midst of, of reasonable disagreement, the things that Christians can disagree on while both being Christians, in the midst of that kind of reasonable disagreement, charity is one of the things that the Bible provides for us. It's a tool that the Bible gives to us that we can exercise in order to preserve unity. But it's not the only tool. And my fear is that, ironically, we, we, would, we would forget 
that we have other tools at our disposal for achieving and preserving unity. And we put all of our unity eggs in the basket of charity, if you will, and that in a tragic sense of irony, we'd actually have less unity because we're not utilizing one of the best tools that the Lord has given to us in order to achieve and preserve unity, namely powerful and persuasive preaching. Yes, we can preserve unity by being charitable toward one another in the midst of disagreement. However, in addition to that, we can achieve a greater sense of unity by simply getting on the same page. And we're not going to get on the same page if we have somehow come up with this extra biblical rule that during this time, in the name of charity, we're not allowed to attempt from the scripture to make powerful and persuasive arguments. So one of the ways that my church is gaining unity on this is by its pastors and its deacons reiterating again and again and again that we want to extend charity towards those members who disagree with us. And yet another way that my church is achieving and preserving unity in all of this is by the pastors and deacons making powerful and persuasive arguments from the scripture so that the members of our church wouldn't just feel loved in the midst of disagreement, but but that they actually might overcome their position of disagreement and be persuaded of our position. Now, I understand that the first kind of objection, the pushback to the statement I just made is, well, why should be you know, people be persuaded of your position? What makes you so confident? Well, the reality is that we could be wrong. Of course we could be wrong. But, but there are some things in life that necessitate a position. Look, churches are either going to gather or they're not. So if your church is saying, we don't have a position and we're just going to wait and see what happens before resuming gathering. Well, that is a position. That is a position. You're saying that Hebrews 10.25, God's commandment not to forsake the gathering, is simply not substantial enough. It's not, it's just not important enough to go ahead and gather in the midst of everything that's currently going on. That's a position. Uh, so, so all I'm doing really is I'm not doing anything that, that someone else isn't also doing. I'm just owning it. I'm just admitting it. I'm just, all, all I'm doing is I'm just acknowledging what I'm doing. Right? It's like Ben Shapiro versus CNN. Right? Both are opinion pieces. Neither one is news. Neither one is neutral, unbiased you know, just the good old unadulterated facts. They're both opinion pieces. They're both pundits. But Ben Shapiro has the common decency and respect for the American people to admit that he is providing an opinion piece. He's providing the news through his worldview, through his opinion. And CNN doesn't have the common decency or the just, the foresight to acknowledge that they're doing the exact same thing. 
right? New York Times would be another example, right? They're just the unbiased, unadulterated, neutral facts. And no, of course not. The New York Times is, is just as left-leaning as Ben Shapiro or Andrew Clavin or whoever is, is right-leaning. It's just one group is admitting it, the other isn't. So to bring it back to the purpose of our conversation, all I'm saying is I have a position. I have biblical backing for my position. I, I, I could be interpreting the scriptures wrongly. I could be wrong about this, but, but I'm at least going to own that I have a position. I think churches should gather. Not the way we gathered two months ago before all this took place, but, but safely and with prudence, churches should gather. I think the risk to the soul by missing the Lord's Day gathering outweighs at this point the risk to the body given the current data regarding the virus, especially if we're encouraging those who are vulnerable, the elderly, those with pre-existing medical conditions to stay home. So I'm having, I have a position. I'm owning my position. I'm acknowledging my position. Uh, but the person who's not gathering, that pastor in his church who's not gathering at this time while claiming they don't have a position is not being honest. That is a position. It is a position. And so all I'm saying is that in this, I think it's helpful for us to extend charity in the midst of disagreement, especially, especially at the local church level. And yet at the very same time, I think we should own our positions, explain our positions from the scripture, explain to one another how we got there. And it's, our position doesn't just result from a, from a feeling deep inside, but, but it's actually a, a, a thoughtful position that, and, and that comes from our understanding of what the scripture actually teaches on, on matters such as these. And then I think we should extend charity with those who disagree, but I think we should do one other thing. I think we should try in loving ways to persuade one another, to persuade one another. And, and I think that although, yes, this is a very sensitive time, and although, yes, it, it, many of the the details and circumstances surrounding this season are unprecedented. And, and, and yes, it, it absolutely mandates and calls for a high degree of charity, but, but not at the expense of persuasion. No matter what crisis we're in, the Bible speaks to all of life. Even, I would say, especially moments like these. The Bible does have something to say. And, and, and when God speaks by virtue of his word, whenever God speaks, he does not speak out of both sides of his mouth. Whenever God speaks, he speaks in one direction. He speaks with fidelity and consistency. And I think it's incumbent upon all believers to search the scriptures diligently not to see if God has something to say about this, but to see what God has said about this because God has spoken to all of life. And so we need to find out what is it that God says about this. And, and when we come to that conclusion from the scripture, we then need to, again, extend charity towards those who disagree, especially in our local church, but not extending charity at the cost or the expense of having the freedom to voice our opinion, to, to present our biblical arguments 
and to attempt by God's grace to persuade one another. And so by God's grace, our church is gaining day by day more unity on this issue because I am trying to be more careful to be charitable, but also because I am trying to make clearer, more scripturally supported, sharper, more persuasive arguments for the position held by the elders and deacons of our church and therefore the members of our church, one by one, are being won over. So we're gaining unity the same way the church has always gained unity. We're gaining unity on this subject the same way we gained unity on soteriology. Extending charity towards those who disagree, and yet at the same time, attempting from the Scripture to persuade those who disagree. And over time, that's how unity is achieved and preserved. I don't think, I, I don't think it's this, I think it's a false dichotomy to say that we have to choose one or the other, right? To say that, say, there's two tools that God has provided for achieving and preserving unity, namely charity and persuasion. But for whatever reason, in the midst of this crisis, we're only allowed to use one of them. I think that's a false dichotomy. I just, I categorically disagree with that sentiment. I think, as we always have, we have the freedom in Christ to use both charity and persuasion. It's not either or, it's both and. I don't always like that both and language with everything. It doesn't work with everything, but I think it works with this. It's charity and persuasion. So yes, the, 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 the tension is, and I think we have to just live in this tension and try to hold it wisely and carefully. The tension is, whenever someone tries to be persuasive, that's the very moment that someone's going to say, you're not being charitable. See, that's, that's the tension. That's a very real tension. And I have the utmost sympathy for that difficulty. It is very difficult to, to provide powerful and persuasive preaching and be charitable and patient towards those who disagree at the very same time. But, but I think it can be done. So I think we're going to have to have lots of clarifying statements. We're going to have to be really clear and careful in our language. Um, but in our attempts to be careful and charitable, we cannot, we cannot simply remove persuasion from the scenario, from the equation. Um, if so, we're never going to have the kind of unity that the Bible speaks of. There is a, a unity of common care. Right? That's, that's our love toward one another. But there's also a unity that the Bible speaks of in regards to common conviction. Are you familiar with that? Have you ever thought about that? There's not just one kind of unity in the Scripture. Unity of common care. Charity towards one another in the midst of disagreement. Right? Our love for one another. Bearing one another's burdens. That's, that's a unity of common care, if you will. But there's also a unity of common conviction. Where do we see that? Well, Ephesians 4 would be a great example. It speaks of, of the unity of the faith. Not just a unity of love, but a unity of the faith. A unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Ephesians chapter 4 says that that's precisely why Christ has given to the church 
leaders, apostles and prophets to lay a foundation, and now evangelists and shepherd teachers. I would see that as evangelists and pastors to build upon that foundation. For what purpose? For the purpose of unity. So that, so that in this constructing of the church, a, a temple built with living stones, that each member of the bride of Christ being a stone built together by Christ through the agency of apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, all this being built together, and not just built together in, in, a, in a loving unison, but, but in a unity not just of common care, but a unity of common conviction. Not just unified in the sense that we love one another even when we disagree, but unified in the sense that that we actually share the same knowledge of the Son of God. That we are arriving, we're we're being directed in the same direction. We are arriving at the same conclusions, the same destination in regards to a unity, not just of love, but a unity of the knowledge of Christ. A a unity of faith, a, a unity of conviction. And I think when the church preaches on the importance of of the unity of common care at the expense of the unity of common conviction, when we preach charity at the expense of persuasion, ironically and tragically, we actually end up with less unity than we could have otherwise. I hope this has been helpful. Tune in next time. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.